You are listening to Love Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. Uh, I really, I absolutely loved capturing the culture, capturing my own adventures, capturing sort of, you know, the other side of the world uh, that I was then hooked. So I came home and for my 16th birthday, I asked for a, uh, a more legitimate camera. But I, I knew deep down that it, something had to change and uh, it somehow ended up here. I haven't quite fully digested it. I'm always kind of looking forward of how to move forward. So I'm not really as much always looking back and wondering exactly why it worked. <laughs> this is Dr. Lisa Belisle, and you're listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 245, Maine Photographers, airing for the first time on Sunday, May 29th, 2016. We meet many talented photographers through the work that we do with Maine Magazine, Maine Home and Design, and Oldport Magazine. Today, we speak with two who have had distinctly different career paths. Jeff Roberts began his love of international photography with a high school adventure. Trent Bell trained in and practiced architecture before finding his vocation as a photographer. Each has a true passion for his work. Thank you for joining us. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaMe.com for more information. Maine Magazine presents the Kenny Bunkport Festival, June 6th through June 11th. Join in the fun with over 35 events throughout the week, including big fun parties, private dinners, cocktails, music, and art. Take your pick or attend them all by visiting KennyBunkportFestival.com or by calling 207-772-3373. As a writer for Maine Magazine and the wellness editor, my job is words. And I'm really privileged to work with a number of very talented photographers um, for our magazines whose job um, really is the images. And really, Jeff Roberts is one of these photographers who helps make Maine Magazine, Maine Home Design, the publications that they are. Today, we have Jeff Roberts here in the studio with us. He has worked as a photographer internationally from Boston to Burma to Budapest. When not behind a camera, Jeff can be found homebrewing beer in a blizzard, shucking fresh oysters, stoking bonfires, exploring the Maine woods, and willfully getting lost in new places throughout the world. I'm glad you got yourself lost at 75 Market Street. Thanks for coming in. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's great to get lost here. Well, we really enjoy the work that you do. Uh, You have an upcoming um, piece, I believe, about the fish houses in the June issue of, um, I think it's Maine Home Design. I believe they've actually moved it to Maine Magazine. Maine Magazine. It's so lifestyle-y and so sort of embodied the fun of Maine summers uh, that they decided it was more appropriate for Maine Magazine. But you've done... Everything. I mean, I think you've done pieces, you've done a lot of work on dwellings, houses right. and such, but you've also done some people, you've done some some images. Yeah, I'm lucky. I've sort of, uh, throughout my career as a photographer, I've shot quite a 
bit of different types of work. Uh, I worked as an international travel photographer for a while. I've shot a bunch of fashion and beauty work, uh, food work, architecture, portraiture, um, sort of the gamut of things. Not a whole lot of babies or pets, but aside from that, I've, I've kind of done it all. Uh, so I'm really fortunate to have shot so many different genres and sort of have moved my focus from different types of work to the other. Uh, I think I've now mostly settled on architecture uh, and commercial product photography. Um, but I really, I, I think the, the range has been a lot of fun and has also helped teach me things um, for genres that uh, that I'm learning from other genres uh, that I wouldn't have learned had I stuck with just certain types of uh, photography. Tell me about your photographer's journey. How did you get to be a photographer <clears throat> in the first place? Why, why do this? Uh, when I was 15, a uh, family friend was nice enough to bring me along to a trip to Africa where we climbed Kilimanjaro and then went on safari. It was a two weeks before uh, my 16th birthday. And I borrowed my parents' camera from the 70s. And uh, it was, you know, pretty subpar camera. It was from the 70s. Uh, and I just had a blast. Uh, I really, I absolutely loved capturing the culture, capturing my own adventures, capturing sort of, you know, the other side of the world uh, that I was then hooked. So I came home and for my 16th birthday, I asked for a, uh, a more legitimate camera. Uh, took the standard route of taking classes in high school and all that. And then I went on to a regular uh, good old college degree, uh, emphasis, uh, sorry, religious studies, emphasis in Buddhism. Uh, not very applicable to either photography or, frankly, jobs. Uh, the monasteries weren't hiring a whole lot. Um, so from there, I uh, worked with at-risk youth um, for quite a few years, uh, but also photography was a hobby of mine throughout, and I did a few jobs on the side, and it slowly transitioned away from working with these uh, with the kids to slowly doing more and more photography jobs, and eventually just became full-time. So why not just jump into photography? Uh, partially because it's really hard to do. Um, a lot of people want to be a photographer. I'm very fortunate to have made it work as a career. Um, but I, you know, like most things, I knew nothing about photography. So it took a long, long time and a lot of bad pictures um, to learn how to take some good pictures. I still take a lot of bad pictures, and I'm perfectly okay with that. Um, you know, it, it, failures are, are to be embraced, I think. Some of the photos that I saw on your website um, are just beautiful images of people. Has your experience working with people, maybe at at-risk youth or maybe with the Buddhist studies, I mean, has that enabled you to get better shots of people? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, frankly, a lot of it is my travels and plunging into worlds that are completely unlike my own. Um, I think that, that can really help. It, the exploration of other cultures is a lot of fun to me, whether it's you know, in the middle of India or whether I'm visiting a friend who lives on an island in Canada, I still want to know, you know, sort of about the, the natives in their, <laughs> in their natural habitat. Uh, and that applies to Maine, that applies to everywhere. I'm just sort of forever curious. Um, and I, tr and I, I try to apply that to my photography and I hope that comes through. I'm interested in this this Buddhist studies idea, I guess, because Buddhism has become very popular. It's yeah. become the thing that everybody talks about. We all talk about metta. We all talk about loving kindness. Sure. There's like yogis everywhere, although I guess that's more Hindu. But, but meditation has become a thing. Right. But to actually focus your studies as an undergraduate on yeah. that, what was the draw? 
Well, you know, it's funny. I said I'd never be anything like my father. Uh, he's a college professor, and he his focus is Protestantism and how that affected Darwinism and vice versa. And I swore I would never be anything like him, and I ended up doing basically the exact same thing, just on the other side of the globe with a different religion. Um, when I was 17, I was... This was... Because I climbed Kilimanjaro, we were some of the youngest people to ever do what was what's considered the hard route. And so mountaineering companies were interested in some of us becoming guides. So I then had a trip to Tibet, Nepal, and Thailand when I was 17. Um, and that just blew my mind. Uh, I really thought the cultures were just incredibly interesting. They were nothing like anything I'd ever experienced. Um, and so I really, you know, against better judgment and advice, when I was in college, I just took the classes for what I was interested in. Um, and sort of come my junior year, I said, oh, I should probably pick a major by now and looked at uh, <laughs> looked at what I had the most credits in and realized that I obviously was focusing on Eastern religions uh, and was really intrigued. I should add that I left college more confused about my own religion than I entered. Um, but I really enjoy studying the culture and the, the, the interplay between the culture and religion. Um, and it makes my travels more fulfilling. Um, because I can, I can, you know, when I'm looking at the art or the, or the sculptures or the carvings or whatever, I, you know, at least I can understand some of the background, some of the stories. All I'm sitting here thinking as you're talking is what a gift. What a gift to be 15 years old yeah. on Kilimanjaro yeah. and yeah. be 17 Truly. And, and all these travels. Truly. What kind of great parents must you have had to let you go out in the world and do that? Well, it's funny. They were really conflicted. Uh, My dad's a college professor, and my mom has always worked for universities. So me leaving school for any reason was really painful for them and and difficult to accept. Um, But I think in retrospect, they've realized that those two trips alone, one could argue, uh, sort of formed the basis of who I am. My love for travel, my love for photography, um, and a willingness to explore and accept other cultures. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's completely a gift, uh, both in that somebody actually picked up the tab, but also in that it was <clears throat> some of the greatest experiences of my life and planted the seed for my, you know, addiction to travel uh, a long time ago uh, and allowed me to see things that a lot of other people um, in my school, in my social circle, will, were not as fortunate to be able to see. Um, and so nowadays when I travel, I try to post ridiculous things on social media and Instagram and all that to try to inspire others to travel um, because I think it's something that's often lost on people. So I don't know if it's really giving back, but I was inspired to travel by others, so now I'm trying to, to, to do the same for others. Did that require any sort of fearlessness when you were 15? Probably, but when you're a 15-year-old boy, you're pretty darn fearless as it is. Um, it's funny, my dad did not think I would, would have wanted to go to Africa. So when he was first um, given the offer uh, for me to go, he said, no, I don't think so. Uh, but, I, you know, nothing is more exciting than trying something new um, and exploring a new place. So it was, it was purely fun. I mean, climbing the mountain is not a, <laughs> not a whole lot of fun at all times, but it was still, even that was it's one of the hardest things I've ever done. And it was still amazing um, and fun in a sort of a sick sense of the way. Well, what I love about this conversation is that so much of what we do with kids in high school is very tracked is very you know you do this then you do this then you do this and because you took this detour early on I think in your mind well I don't want to presume but it seems like you could have more easily said well but this is a possibility and over here's a possibility and and I don't have to be on the same track everybody else is sure 
Sure. Yeah, I actually delayed uh, getting my driver's license because of Africa, which everybody thought was just absurd. But, you know, now that I've been driving for 15 years, I think the six-month delay was not <laughs> not a huge sacrifice. So, But that's actually, that's a very good example. I mean, I think <clears> that <throat> when... When we're young, and I would say even when we're heading up into middle age, we do things and they seem to have to be on a certain timeline right, for right. whatever reason that sure. somebody else has decided that we sure. need to be on that timeline. Sure. But then when you look at the bigger picture, what's the big deal? Right. What's the, uh, where's the end point in all of this? Yeah. Yeah. I think the traditional timeline is vastly overrated. I think it's it's important to, to find your own way, find your own timeline. What is your... Um, how did you end up in Buxton, Maine? You live here now. <laughs> I know you have an Ocean Park connection with your family. Yeah, so my great-grandfather built uh, a cottage in Ocean Park uh, 105 years ago, something like that. Um, and that was then, he had four sons, and so that has then been split up among the extended family. Um, so my mother went there every year of her life for a couple weeks. I've gone there every year of my life for a couple weeks. Um, I moved around quite a bit as a kid. I'm originally from Boston, lived in Wisconsin, lived in Michigan. Um, so kind of always thought I would continue to be a nomad. I'd never lived anywhere longer than five or six years. Um, at one point, I had sold everything and was planning to move to uh, Bocas del Toro, um, which is an archipelago in Panama, um, because at the time, it was incredibly um, simple or e- easy residency laws, citizen- path to citizenship. Um, you could buy an island for $30,000. You'd build a house on stilts over the water for $30,000, and then you own paradise. Um during that time, I was also working as a travel photographer. So I did a year-long project in South and Southeast Asia. Um, and halfway through that project, uh, I got an email from my real estate agent slash lawyer down in Panama who said that uh, Panama changed all of their residency laws and it was no longer possible. Suddenly, you needed a half million dollars. And you know, at 27, I was sadly about half million dollars short of a half million dollars. Um, so I then went on. Uh, so I sort of, I, I quite literally looked at a map. I was on a rural island in Indonesia when I found this out. Um, and I looked at a map of the U.S. and said, where do I want to go? And I knew that I wanted a place that had great outdoors. Um, and so I thought about northern New Mexico, Utah, and Maine. And I realized that Maine just sort of fit better politically, culturally, etc. To have New York be five hours away, Montreal five hours away, Boston two hours away. And now I'm in, for me, it's the ideal. I can't ever imagine leaving because I'm a half an hour from Portland, I'm a half an hour from the ocean, and I'm a half an hour, maybe 45 minutes from the White Mountains. It's an amazing thing. Uh, it's something you, you don't have in most legitimately cool cities. And I think Portland is legitimately cool. We have an amazing restaurant scene, amazing art scene, amazing music scene. I couldn't ask for a whole lot more, uh, but I still get to live in my own little house out in the woods. Uh, for me, it's just perfect. And I've, I say that as somebody who's always lived in cities. So at first, the idea of moving to the woods was a little, <laughs> a little intimidating. I've seen, you know, every horror movie ever has uh, has the, the the scary neighbors um, from outer space, uh, and I've yet to meet those scary neighbors from outer space. So uh, I don't know. I love I love living in the woods, and I don't really see myself becoming a city dweller again anytime soon. So. If you're living out in the woods, but you also love to travel, there must be an element of your personality that enjoys solitude, that enjoys quiet and peace and nature. Yeah, but (laughs) I say that with with hesitation. I sort of struggle to relax. Um, Relax in the traditional sense of the word. Um, Me exploring something new and tracking down curiosities is my way of relaxing. 
you know, this this winter I spent seven weeks in India and going to the chaotic part of Old Delhi where it's every, you know, all of your senses are being overloaded. That in a in a in an odd way is still relaxing to me. But at the same time, walking through the trails that are adjacent to my property you know alone in the middle of the night with a full moon reflecting off of the off of the snow and i don't even need a headlamp that's a whole different sense of relaxation but it's still tracking down curiosities it's still you know an adventure what drives you to be so curious i have no idea um maybe because a lot of these interesting things were presented to me on my travels when i was young that that then sort of sowed the seed of curiosity. I don't know. I think I've always been pretty pretty curious. I ask too many questions too often, I think. Um, I was a, I'm pretty sure I was a pretty exhausting child. Uh, <laughs> pretty sure I'm an exhausting 35-year-old now, too, so that's okay. Well, it's it's funny because I think there are people who are content to just... Things are around them, and things are around them. There's not really... They don't need to know more. They don't need to seek anything out. They don't need to travel anywhere, and that's completely fine. And I think that is completely fine, and in ways I'm jealous of that um, because I really fail at finding contentedness just doing whatever I'm doing. Um, I I mean, I say that. My my current lifestyle, I'm very happy with and content, Um, but it's not staying within my own box uh i fear my own my own comfort zone Uh, i really like getting pushed out and having to you know find my way while lost in japan or or whatever else that to me that is uh i'm more comfortable being uncomfortable in that regard i guess so you'd you'd rather the uncertainty of something larger than the restriction of something smaller yeah that's a that's a great way of putting it I actually enjoyed watching you go through um, India this yeah. this last few months ago. Uh, I think that I enjoyed a few. I was watching you on Instagram, so it's a little bit of the travel voyeur sure, in sure. me. It's it is very. I love I love travel sites. I love yeah. travel photography, yeah, and it's fun to see. It was fun to see you doing this stuff. Um, one of the things that you took a picture of, I believe, was this enormous tea plantation. Yeah, and it's staggering to think that what's happening over there directly impacts what we do over here you know my morning cup of right right it is yeah this is assam tea i was sort of driving through at the time i was staying in far far east india in a place called nagaland headhunting was happening until 1956 it's on the border of burma it's this really sort of crazy alien place where almost nobody goes i had to sign a book when i got there um that uh that every western tourist has a sign and there hadn't been anybody there in over a week um so it's a pretty interesting place to be and when we were we had a 10-hour drive from one part of nagaland to the other uh and it made more sense to cross over into assam which is the adjacent state um and so there we are i'm sort of you know driving along and I look around at all these tea fields and I see a sign that says Assam on there and it's it is it's very interesting because you hear about Assam tea all the time uh, and I've you know I spent three and a half months in India um, back in 2007 and it still sort of never clicks until suddenly you're standing in the middle of a tea pl- plantation surrounded by women picking tea uh, with a sign that says Assam next to you uh, and it you know it's one of those things that makes this world feel really huge but also immensely small 
I think you also took a picture of, was it a monkey outside your window in a hotel, (laughs) which I found kind of amusing and slightly disturbing. It is. It is a little disturbing. I think a lot of people who haven't interacted with monkeys say, oh, cute monkey. But monkeys often like to rip your face off. Uh, (laughs) So it's, uh, it it was, you know, it's interesting because you're in India. This is not land of safety glass and tempered glass. And I was in Varanasi at the time, which is right over the Ganges. And, uh... You know, I woke up in the morning and there's literally monkeys tapping on my window. Uh, it was an interesting thing. Uh, it, it was, it's fun though. I mean, it was my own personal zoo with a view over the Ganges and the holiest city in India to many. Uh, it was, it's pretty amazing. It's one of those times where you have to pinch yourself. And I think that room was something like $7 a night too. Let's like just to put it out there. I mean, the fact that you can have experiences like that, um, just show that it is very possible for kind of anyone to travel. Um, when you can stay at a hotel for $7 a night, I mean, I think my own mortgage is a whole heck of a lot more than that. Uh, so it's just amazing to be able to have opportunities like that. But you bring up a good point. You know, you're talking about <coughs> places like India not having tempered glass. Right. You know, there are a lot of safety things that we've put into place for good reason here in yep. the United States and actually many other places around the world. Um, that when you go to a con- some countries, those don't exist. Yeah, true. So there is actually danger in just something like crossing a street. Sure. <laughs> Especially when you're in Asia where there's no- nobody stops. There's no such thing as a stoplight. You just sort of have to take a deep breath and just start walking and cars go around you. Um, so there is, you know, there's increased danger. Um, but that's, you know, leads to increased self-reliance and just being smart and using good judgment. Uh, you know, when you're in a car, a lot of times, especially if you're in a taxi, you don't have the control. So there is, there's certainly an element of risk. Um, but I, I will also say that the most impressive hospital I've ever been to was a hospital in India. Um, it was impeccably clean. I, was, I actually met with a doctor within five minutes, and I was out of there within about an hour, hour and a half. The entire trip, including lunch and medicine and the taxi, was $35. Uh, and it was impeccable care. Now, that was a major city in India. That was in Chennai. Um, so you wouldn't get that if you're lost in a, in a rural part. Um, but I also think that we, frankly, over-exaggerate our own health care. Um, and, and the skills that we have. And I think we oftentimes assume that they don't have decent health care in other countries. You know, I mean, to be fair, if you, if you get into a car accident in Burma, Cambodia, or Laos, you're not going to a hospital there. They're going to send you to Thailand because that's the only place that can give you real medical care. So there is certainly some inherent risk uh, medically when you're going to a lot of these places. But with the internet, with, you know, flights that are constantly available, Barring a catastrophic incident, if I break a leg or something like that, I can hop on a I can hop on a plane. That's what travel insurance is for. There's evacuation insurance. Um, it's an amazing thing. I was actually I was in Greece last year, and I had some sort of a, a throat soreness, and actually sent a photo <laughs> of my throat, which is an odd photo to send uh, to my doctor here in the U.S. And he responded and told me what prescriptions to get. I went to the pharmacy. Because it's Greece, they were closed for five hours, I think, during the middle of the day for their standard nap. Uh, went back at, I think, 5 o'clock and uh, asked for that prescription. They didn't have that, but they had a couple others. I emailed my doctor back. He told me which one to get. Good to go and, uh, and solved. And so the Internet allows us, it makes the world a smaller place, and it allows us to be a little more adventurous. Um, I didn't have to set aside two days to try to track down a Greek doctor and all that just for standard antibiotics. Uh, so it's a pretty neat thing. 
I like this idea of self-reliance because I, I although I like safety, I mean, obviously sure. I'm a doctor and, <laughs> you know, that I like things that are safe. But I, I think sometimes it causes us to feel a false sense of security right. and that if, right. if you really believe that everything around you is safe, then maybe you don't pay as close attention as right. you probably should. Right. And I think about this with my children, my older children who yeah. travel especially, that I, I want them to feel safe, but I also want them to be aware. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, if we look at sort of the obesity epidemic, um, you know, you can sit at home safely in your living room and slowly shorten your lifespan uh, by eating too much. So, you know, you can shorten your lifespan a whole lot of ways. I would rather potentially risk shortening my lifespan by seeing the world and by experiencing new things. Um, And I've been to a lot of places and I have, you know, knock on wood, have not even had really any close calls. Um, So... What, so you've been from Boston to Burma to Budapest. You've talked about Greece. You've talked about Mount Kilimanjaro. What are some of your favorites? Uh, the default, I usually say, would be India and Burma were my two favorites. Um, India, because it's such a huge country. English is spoken sort of everywhere. They've got, I believe it's hundreds of languages. I know it's at least 200 languages. Yet because of... Um, English colonization, uh, still English is the common bond for language. Um, so it's accessible even when you go to the really remote places. Um, and because you, you hop in a car or a train for four hours and it feels like you're in a new country because culturally it's so different in different regions. Um, Burma would be the other favorite of mine um, just because, frankly, for a long time, I think still it's uh, our government says, do not go there because if something happens to you, we can't help. And so you have to play it extra safe and you have to be careful who you talk to and be careful what you say. I'm a very politically minded person, but I definitely did not talk politics in Burma, both for my own safety, but also for the safety of anyone I talk to. I don't want to get anyone else in trouble, any of the locals uh, in trouble. Uh, but, you know, I was riding home one day um, from a temple sitting in a bicycle rickshaw and there the the passenger seat is sidecar of the bicycle bicycle and so the guy is bicycling along and he looks over to me and he says do you think we've really been on the moon and i mean this is an amazing conversation an amazing question to have and a question that you wouldn't have if you're sort of on the backpacker circuit of thailand i've been to thailand i enjoy that backpacker circuit but having sort of these amazing authentic um, conversations with somebody who's apparently as curious as i am uh in the middle of sort of nowhere um, it's just such an amazing, such an amazing opportunity. Um, so I really enjoy that. On the flip side of those two, Japan is right up there for me as well. Uh, I'm actually headed back to Japan in a week. Um, Japan is interesting in a completely different way in that culturally it is so different from the U.S. Um, there's not a whole lot of English spoken. Um, I've never been so lost in my life as the times I've spent in Japan. Uh, but that's, you know, that's the fun in it too. Um, and while I usually try to travel in the developing world or whatever else, frankly, for, for budget reasons, Japan is, you know, is the opposite of that, but it can still be done cheaply. And that makes it, that adds a level of adventure to it as well. As someone who's actually been to so many different places, what do you think when you see the translations of whatever this is back in the United States? Does that make sense? Like if, you, if you've actually been to Mexico and you've been yeah. in a place that serves authentic Mexican food yeah. or authentic um, has authentic Mexican tapestries, for example. Sure. When you come back to the United States and you see our translation of it. Um, 
You know, it's interesting. I think, I think it's funny. If you pass Mexicali Blues here in Portland, it's an entire store full of things that are sold in India and, and things like that. It's, uh, it, it's funny to see. Some people would call it cultural appropriation. Um, and, and some people think that's, that's inherently a bad thing. I enjoy the fact that we are, uh, we as in the global community, are bringing think goods and, and culture and food from India, from Mexico, from wherever, because I think it allows people who are here in Maine to be able to experience those places uh, without having to leave Maine. Uh, it's not always easy to leave Maine, whether it's the cost of a plane ticket or whether it's, you know, a, a job schedule or whether it's family or friends. You know, a lot of people depend on each other. So it's it, it can be tough to leave uh, t- to go to these places. Um, so I think it's great that, that they have it, you know, that it all sort of, thanks to globalization, which is a, very much a double-edged sword, um, it's really neat to be able to experience bits of India and, and, and Mexico or every, really every country. Uh, I mean, you know, you can get bur- great Burmese food in New York. Uh, it's a lot quicker uh, quicker car ride than it is a flight to Burma. So, Jeff, I know we can see your work in upcoming um, issues of Maine Magazine, Maine Home Design. I think you have quite a lot of stuff that's on the horizon this sure. summer. Yeah. Um, what about other work that you've done? How could people find you? So I've got a few different websites. Uh, my architecture, food, and product work is all on jeffrobertsimaging.com. My fashion and beauty work is on jeffrobertsphoto.com. And my travel photography work is on eyeballglobal.com. Uh, so it's a few different websites. It's <laughs> sort of too much to keep track of um and then there's nerdy old instagram which is instagram.com at jeff roberts photo um well i appreciate your uh your willingness to show us all the parts of the world that not everybody gets a chance to visit maybe someday i'll go hang out in assam and sure hang out oh, with the monkeys at the it's other great. part of india <laughs> uh, but i doing i'm also very grateful that you bring your eye back here to maine and you make it available to the people that read our magazines and I appreciate your taking the time to talk with us today. We've been speaking with Jeff Roberts who has worked as a photographer internationally from Boston to Burma to Budapest. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Maine seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants, The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, This newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch Lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit theroomsportland.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is Portland's largest gallery and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting work of contemporary Maine artists, and we also host a series of monthly solo shows in our newly expanded space. The current show schedule includes Eric Hopkins, Matthew Russ, Jane Damon, William Crosby, and Ruth Hamill, to name a few. Please visit our website for complete show details at artcollectormaine.com. We're fortunate at Maine Magazine, Maine Home Design, Old Port Magazine to work with a number of very talented photographers, and one of them is Trent Bell. Trent is a Maine-based photographer originally from Virginia. Bell has a master's in architecture from Andrews University and practiced architecture until he realized he was much better suited to photography and founded Trent Bell Photography. If Bell is not with his wife, Amber, and two sons, you will find him either working or surfing. Thanks for coming in. Absolutely. So I'm kind of interested in this uh, morphing over from architecture to photography because 
while they're both kind of visual, I've interviewed photographers and I've interviewed architects, and the mindset seems a little different. <laughs> That's probably why I didn't last as an architect. <laughs> Um, I, I really enjoyed the uh, schooling of architecture. Uh, it, was, it was very interesting for me to go through high school and everything else and be a very average, unengaged student. And then to uh, try going at being pre-med for a while didn't work out very well. I, you know, I actually applied myself and could only really get by with about Bs, low Bs, and I realized that trying to go pre Pre-med or dental would have, would have been, you know, an uphill battle. And uh, a friend of mine, Caleb Johnson, was going through architecture school, and uh, that really intrigued me. And uh, when I went into that, it was just like, wow, this is really great, being creative and thinking in this manner, learning how things go together and why uh, things and the built environment, the designed environment works. Um, and that was really interesting to me and I loved the schooling of it. But then uh, my personality with <clears throat> the day-to-day -day workings of actually running a practice came up a little short, honestly. I just wasn't a great, uh, I, I didn't have a high tolerance for going to the same place every day uh, at the same desk and, you know, the stick to that's required for making it through all those details and dealing with clients for such a long period of time, um, you know, it was, was wearing me thin. And I kind of realized I have one life and to do this every day in a way that just doesn't fit making me happy was, was something that was very difficult to deal with. And, and to make the choice to walk away from so much education and then three years of professional investment starting a business with a friend afterwards was a hard uh, point and decision to come to, but it has uh, worked out very well for me, luckily. So, How many years ago did you make that decision? Uh, it would have been about 10 years ago, probably, to, to switch or, or to jump ship and then try and figure out what I was going to do. <laughs> Because I really had no plan and luckily at the time we didn't have any children and my wife was working full-time so I had the luxury of uh, putting everything I could into starting a business I was going to just start uh, doing uh, property development and uh, you know buying flipping houses this is when the market was spiking uh, and then a friend of mine who's a commercial photographer out in California suggested why don't you try architectural photography um, I'd been interested in photography in the past, but the all the complications with actual darkroom work and chemicals and everything else just wasn't up my alley at all. Uh, but where photography came into the digital realm, and I'm such a gadget kind of geek, you know, with everything else that's kind of nerdy, but I really get into that, it started to combine this very visually uh, creative aesthetic world with a very quick uh, turnaround capability that satisfied my attention span and combined it with all this technical gadgetry it just kind of came together for me and uh, I just kind of jumped into it and here I am so I lucked out somehow but <laughs> it is I, I think that in some ways well some would say luck some would say being open to the circumstance. I don't, I, I don't really know, but 
I, I think one of the challenges that I often see is that people feel like they have to do something because they need to follow a pattern that everybody else follows, that they need to be good. Say you wanted to do pre-med, for example. Mm-hmm. You need to be good like all the other pre-med students. Your mind needs to work like their minds. Right. And to be open to finding something that is a good fit for the way that you look at the world, the way that you process things intellectually, um, that that requires some kind of a leap of faith in a way. Yeah, I it, it is very interesting to me to discover myself, my own uh, abilities and value to what I can contribute, how I can learn, how I can process, and how that's valuable to other people. And to come to terms to that eventually, I was raised in a family that was much more so uh, culturally focused around professions like doctor, teacher, uh, pastor, nurse, things that are direct interaction with people. And it was never... Uh, directly implied or anything else. I was just kind of a, a cultural, like, typical thing. And to really think that I could even go into architecture was kind of a little bit outside the, the norm. But then to switch over to then say, I'm going to pay for my house off of taking pretty pictures. That was, you know, when I when I eventually told my dad, like, yeah, I'm going to become a photographer. Even when I look back on that now, I'm a little like, what on earth was I thinking? But even at the time, his, you know, honest reaction was just, what? You can't make money at that. And, you know, he was in no way trying to discourage me or anything else. It was just his, like, gut reaction of, there, there's no money in that. You can't do that. You're not going to be able to make your house payments. You know, you guys are going to be in the poor house. You're going to be a starving artist. And just to to have a wife or one that she never once questioned me never once asked uh you know are you gonna get a weekend job are you gonna you know i it was uh, looking back i have a hard time picturing you know how she could have had so much confidence in me to make these this work you know because if i were her i never would have <laughs> but for some reason she was uh su- has always been supportive in in that way um, as long as we're not in debt, she kind of is just do whatever you want. Um, so that's a bit of a luxury on my part. But um, yeah, a bit of a tangent there went off on, I guess. But <laughs> No, I think it's an important tangent. I think that when you aren't happy in what you're doing or it just doesn't feel like the right fit, it's just crucial to have somebody else who says, that's okay. You know, we'll, we'll figure this out. And as long as we've got some basic foundation of security, we can make this work. Right. Because not everybody does have that. Yeah, and coming to that decision point is is very difficult to step outside of that norm. I mean, we were in no financial terrible position because my wife was working full-time as a physical therapist and we didn't have kids. Um, But to step away from, to make that choice to say, this really isn't working for me. I'm going to step away from this, you know, master's degree in architecture and three years of trying to start a business. Um, you know, was was very difficult and very very painful in many ways, but I I knew deep down that it something had to change, and uh, it somehow ended up here. I haven't quite fully digested. I'm always kind of looking forward of how to move forward, so I'm not really as much always looking back and wondering exactly why it worked, but. <laughs> 
Well, I, I, I mean, the fact that you and I are sitting here having this conversation um, should be evidence to people who listen to the show that I kind of understand what you're talking about. I mean, I was, I'm trained as a physician. My job is a physician. So most people would say you need to go be a physician because that's how people make their car payments, right, and their mortgages. But I, th- you know, being having a radio show or writing for the magazines, I mean, those are just also equally important, you know, to be able to say, it's okay, I can be a doctor, but I can also be this, or I can do something a little bit different. I don't have to follow the path that other people believe mm-hmm. is, is the one that makes the most sense. Yeah, that's, it's, it, it is interesting. Like, the, I've heard a lot of people discuss that the, I mean, like, your education, what it can apply to uh, as far as the total well-being of someone you obviously have a huge background then in understanding the human body and then how it translates into possibly mental well-being spiritual well-being and everything else Um, you know the architectural background has a huge amount of influence on why I've been able to make my house payments (laughs) as a photographer Um, you know to have that aesthetic training and to approach the subject matter that I most typically work with is a huge, uh, you know, it, it one informs the other. So, yeah, that's actually a really good point, and that it's not wasted. It's not like you know, yeah. your master's in architecture was wasted when you became a photographer. It just was used in a different way. Right. A, a, a lot of people uh, email me and ask me, "Well, I'm I'm thinking about being a photographer. You know, what what's your advice?" And I usually respond to people saying get to know really well the subject that you want to shoot, that you're interested in. I mean, if it's shooting cars, I'd almost say get more of an education in cars than in photography. I have no training whatsoever in photography other than what Chet Williams has taught me, a good friend of mine, and an immense amount of stuff that Irvin Serrano taught me, an incredible photographer who I owe a lot of thanks to um, for everything that he shared with me and uh, but knowing your subjects that you're shooting is is going to give you that ability to translate your aesthetic and mental uh, voice through imagery uh, and, and communicate that whereas if if you're so focused on just the technical aspects of things and getting this image perfect I mean you can look through a ton of my image and see a lot of technical imperfections, but I think more often the thing that sings the most and connects most with people is going to be the emotion communicated through composition and lighting primarily. So I would, you know, I always tell people really understand your subject and then, you know, composition and lighting and then the technical aspect really. Irvin Serrano is someone who's worked with the magazines also quite a lot, and he does mm. do beautiful work. And the fact that he's here, as are a lot of other really talented artists, photographers of and artists of other sorts here in Maine, I mean, it seems like such an interesting opportunity that we would all come to this this state mm-hmm. that could, is, you know, in many places is quite rural, but but the creativity, you know, the talent that we have right here, yep. has that surprised you? Um, no, um, see, I, I, I look at it as I, I think there's a high percentage of creatives will be fairly introverted and will want to, for one, be in a place where they can find peace and time to be reflective and space to be reflective. Um, and, uh, also want that 
somewhat of a blank slate kind of atmosphere that I mean artists purchase blank canvas not paintings you know people with money that appreciate what artists do purchase what they do uh, it, and you know that's a lot of what attracted me to Bitterford is that it's you know it's more so a, a blank slate and Maine to a large degree is a blank slate um, but the creative atmosphere in Maine and, and the amount of people I've seen move here from away uh, is, you know, vastly changed in the last decade, you know, decade and a half since I've been here about. Um, and that doesn't really surprise me just because of my mentality and, and why I am here and, and why I would think others are here. You know, it seems like a a place of opportunity whereas if you're thinking of it purely as a business place I mean I would think Kevin's kind of proved that wrong where he came here from a I think he was from Massachusetts somewhere but saw an opportunity in a state that's one of the worst in the country to do business in supposedly but you know I I mean the people that run the Indian restaurant in Biddeford they, he came here on a lottery uh, visa lottery from packet or no from India and he arrived in New York with $20 in his pocket and now is in Maine and owns three restaurants how can you tell me and he's he's he owns a really nice house in Saco drives a really nice car owns three profitable very profitable businesses you know how can you tell me that Maine's a bad place to do business was when someone with twenty dollars and a work ethic now owns a very nice house, very nice car, you know. So it it's all in your state of mind, and I think people are attracted to Maine because there's opportunity. Which you know, if you're going to New York City, you're going to be paying these ridiculous prices for everything. And you know, as a creative, I own. A huge amount of my own gear and everything else largely due to not having to pay huge amounts for studio fees living fee you know everything which allows me to do self projects that are far more creative and you know fund them myself to a degree it allows me more of that creative freedom I'm kind of living in much more of a blank slate for creativity than someone who's saddled with themselves of trying to live in New York City where there might be a lot of work going on but it's other people's ideas that they're servicing whereas I have the ability a little more so maybe to service my own ideas and my own creativity outside of the commercial work that I do. You're right that Kevin Thomas and um, who originally actually is from Arista County and then yeah. moved to Massachusetts and okay. then came back you're right that he saw kind of a space to start these magazines along with his co-owner Susan Grisanti and and he has been very successful when I think other people have kind of doubted that that would be so sometimes I think that people have a hard time if they can't picture what might be they have a hard time supporting a possibility Oh yeah, I mean, and especially to start when they did with the whole digital, you know, revolution really of ending print, essentially, you know, to a large degree, and to still have been successful at it with, you know, avant-garde business practices and everything else, if that's the right word, um, has, you know, uh, made a name for himself, made a, a huge brand in Maine, has, you know, added to the... Uh, architectural design community and benefited that part of the community to a huge degree, I know. Um, 
So it, you know, it's, it's all about fresh perspective and uh, seeing the opportunity. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of pitfalls and different ways that you can do that and offend people and make people like you and everything else. But, you know, I mean, it's here and, it, uh, and it's helping a lot of people and a lot of the main economy at the same time. So, you know, it's different people's perspective and opportunity. So, Talk to me about um, some of the projects that you do that really are your, your, your projects, the ones that people don't hire you for, but that you really believe strongly in yourself. Um, I shared a studio space with Irvin Serrano for a little while, and he did a really great project on, um, uh, I believe, women that were going through uh, cancer, and, uh, and it was a portrait series. And I just read a lot on um, on how personal projects are just good for your own business to do. So I kept thinking, you know, I really got to do something like this. Uh, and then I had a friend that uh, was convicted of a crime and sentenced to about 36 years in prison. And that sought, sat on my mind for quite some time. Uh, and I just kept thinking about it because we were very similar growing up, all the same interests and everything else. He, uh, you know, wasn't going to be able to be with his kids anymore. They were going to be who knows how old by the time he got out, everything else. Um, and that kind of just sat on me and, and made me reflect a lot on, you know, my own life and how things could have been different possibly. But, you know, why when we were so similar, why are they so different? Um, and uh, my studio manager and I sat down to try and conceive an idea for a personal project and this was on my mind so I said hey why don't we do a thing uh, you know portraits of prison inmates and you know he was kind of how are you gonna get access to these guys this is ridiculous and I just kind of you know like it'll happen don't worry about it but at the same time we knew that you know just portraits are going to be engaging but they're not gonna be a huge you know uh, it's just gonna be a portrait so we talked some more about it and came up with the idea of having them write a handwritten letter to their younger self and then putting that handwritten letter around their portrait. And it's, it, it's been an incredible, um, it's been an incredible thing to see uh, still media connect individuals of such different background to watch people stand in front of these and kind of take in the inmate's letter, which is, you're basically at that point eavesdropping because the letter's written to the younger inmate, not you, but you're there reading it, looking at their portrait, eavesdropping with their voice in your head. Um, but it was it was really an extension of wanting to try and do something that could, uh, without really any other financial bias other than doing something that was good for exposure and everything else, which it has turned out to be in that way, but to really do a project that focused directly on human issues, uh, social issues. And I was really inspired by how that connected with people and it's really sparked a lot more of that desire in me to continue to focus on projects like that. Um, Last summer we did a uh, video uh, project. One of Kevin's sons actually interned with us and helped us a lot on that. but it was around a lot of the homeless and panhandling individuals that you'll see around Portland. We interviewed about 17 individuals and a couple and a um, administration 
administrative person over at uh, Preble Street. And we've had all that footage transcribed and we're kind of sitting through it right now, uh, making a narrative out of it, trying to figure out what story is there. Hopefully going to get Governor LePage to sit down for an interview to give his two cents on that. Um, and so kind of focusing on these type of more uh, emotional social issues is kind of where I'm going with it personally. Um, we're also... The same thing we did with prison in inmates, we're also doing uh, with individuals the same treatment as far as a portrait and a letter to their younger self ensconced around them. We're doing this with individuals that have gone from being atheist to now belief in a deity, and also individuals that have gone from belief in a deity to atheist. So we'll be able to see this very uh, transitional point in people's lives where they've really had this transition in belief. I personally uh, personally have experienced a pretty bad uh, disillusion, if that's the right word, of my faith in the past eight years, probably. Um, and this is the natural way, I guess, for me to explore this is to interact with others that have had a similar transition, at least, both ways, because um, I'm pretty much stuck right in the middle. Uh, we're also doing uh, the same reflect project treatment to individuals that know they're about to die. We've had about four participants so far. As you can imagine, it's not easy to convince someone on their deathbed to, hey, sit for a portrait and write us a letter. But the ones we've been able to get to contribute so far have been extremely moving um, and, and very valuable. So it it's going to take some time, but um, I think in the long run, that's going to be, both of those are going to be really great projects. Um, the other big one we're working on right now is kind of a, a another documentary around my own experience of now turning 40 here in about a month and uh, an impulsive purchase of a 1980s Toyota van on the other side of the country and the ensuing road trip home interviewing individuals that can answer questions that I now have to the disillusion of my own faith. So interviewing big cheeses in the Jewish community, Mormon community, atheist community, Satanist community, um, uh, atheist scientists around evolution, human behavioralists, uh, and then just the adventure of a road trip and uh, interacting with just the common people you'd, you'd bounce stuff off of. So that's going to be happening this summer. That's a really big project that we're working on finding different funding and everything for and outlets for so it'll be exciting you have a lot going on a lot going on i have to try and figure out how to make money in there somewhere too so <laughs> see how that goes yeah, it seems like you'll seems like there'll be something will come through i'm, I'm just guessing on this one okay good so good. far it's worked out all right though so far yeah We've been speaking with Trent Bell, who is a main base photographer. Trent, how do people find out more about the work that you do? Uh, just going to trentbell.com or uh, Instagram or at Trent Bell Photography or our Facebook page. Um, I think we're on Twitter, but I just really copy everything that I put on Instagram to Twitter and Facebook. So. Well, however people find you, I encourage them to do so. You're doing some great work, not only for the magazines, for Kevin Thomas and Susan Grisanti, but also it sounds like these other projects are pretty great. And um, I wish you all the best, and thanks for coming in and talking to us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. 
You have been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 245, Maine Photographers. Our guests have included Jeff Roberts and Trent Bell. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love, Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love, Maine Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love, Maine Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love, Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our Maine Photographer's Show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Berlin City Honda, The Rooms by Harding Lee Smith, Maine Magazine, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Kelly Chase. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasick. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our host's production team, main magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com.
Maine Magazine presents the Kenny Bunkport Festival, June 6th through June 11th. Join in the fun with over 35 events throughout the week, including big fun parties, private dinners, cocktails, music, and art. Take your pick or attend them all by visiting KennyBunkportFestival.com or by calling 207-772-3373.